Hi everyone, how's it going? Very blessed, holy, um, the eve of Holy Tuesday. It's a great blessing. Um, I'm very thankful that I'm here uh, to be with you all and share this uh, blessed Pascha. It's a really nice journey that we're on. We had the Lenten journey. This was, this was excellent and it was beautiful to see this all summarized in the raising of Lazarus. It was very exciting to hear the Lord call out and say, Lazarus, rise. You can almost put your own name in there. Oh, I will also rise. That is incredible. But now we're on, I guess it's a much shorter journey because it's only one week, but much more intense. And I know the readings of today, we've, we're focusing on preparing our inner person as a bride is going to prepare to meet her bridegroom. And that, those are the readings we'll see tomorrow, meeting the bridegroom, our Lord Jesus Christ. On Osana Sunday, our Lord entered into Jerusalem victoriously. He is the offering lamb, the paschal lamb, that will be given for the remission of sins. He had no need to die. There was nothing sinful about him but rather he took flesh so that he could die willingly to save us all. But it is incredible that we will see the preparation for this lamb, but not just the lamb. I guess we're also being prepared during this time. Now it's kind of enigmatic. It was a little interesting the reading yesterday, this, this fig tree, it has lots of leaves and the Lord is hungry. It's very interesting. I remember the Lord was hungry when he was uh, after fasting 40 days, and I guess he was hungry. He wanted some figs, and he went over and found no figs, and he cursed the fig tree. And that was very shocking to the apostles, especially considering that everything else he does afterwards is all healing. It's like, Lord, what are you doing to this poor tree? Now you're going to go heal all these people. It's contradictory. But there is a relationship between yesterday's reading and today. Yesterday presented a problem. Yesterday presented a problem. What was that? We see lots and lots of leaves, but we don't see any fruit. Today kind of continues looking at this problem, but I could say that it's beginning to form for us a solution. So I would like for us, if we could, let's contemplate a bit on the inner preparation as a solution for the barrenness of this fig tree. So what is this fig tree? We all know it's all very apparent in, in the scripture readings. It is and the homilies and the and the Psalms and the, the prophecies, everything we see. This is the Pharisees. These are the Jews. So outward, outwardly, they look very nice. They look as if you should be offering something good. The Lord should be able to visit and find something, and it should be excellent. But I guess that wasn't the case, and it's such a strange anomaly. How can these people be following the law, and yet they are producing no fruit? And I know we read in Scripture, and we have our own thoughts about the law. Oh, the law must be useless. The law must be abolished. The law must be an awful thing. 
Now, the Lord said very clearly, the, the law is not abolished. He did not come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. So I want to talk a little bit about when did the Jews get the law? Because what we're going to see is the law in its proper context, as St. Paul often comments, is really a good thing. It's very nice. It is a tutor. It is someone who teaches us and gives us a little instruction. Sin is bad. Sin leads to death. Some things are good to touch. Other things are bad. Not good. Don't touch those things. It teaches us discernment, to make distinctions. It teaches us that days can be sanctified and consecrated unto the Lord. It teaches us a bit about God's attitude towards different relationships and different things. And ultimately, it teaches us God is very concerned with even the smallest aspects of our lives. Incredible, right? God who commands the entire cosmos, the entire universe, and yet he's concerned with even the smallest things. What a, what a loving and caring God. Very sincere. So anyway, the, remember the Jews after Genesis, they, they um, or at the end of Genesis, they went to Egypt with, with Joseph. And there was a period of a few hundred years where the amount of Jews was increasing, increasing, and the Egyptians were afraid, so they enslaved them. And Egypt became a very influential place for the Jews, because you could imagine the Jews just have no idea who God is. Remember, there was no Bible at the time. There was no book of Genesis. There was nothing. They were left there, and they began to adopt Egyptian gods and Egyptian practices and Egyptian things. Until suddenly the Lord sends Moses, and he brings out his chosen people. So now consider, the, the Jews were living in a land of gluttony. Egypt is a land of gluttony. The church fathers say the Egyptians are gluttonous. Okay, they're not wrong, but uh, we see that God takes them out, and now he must prepare them, perhaps as a bride will be prepared to be with her bridegroom, to leave that place of gluttony and now enter the place of holiness. Oh, what an interesting concept that we will now discuss. The concept of preparing ourselves for holiness. Because I think as we look towards the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we look at our own participation in such sacrifice, we are going to need to be prepared, because even in the liturgy, it is not only Christ who is on that altar, it is all of us. This is what is meant by he took flesh. Flesh includes all of us, so that when he is born, he puts on humanity. When he washes in the Jordan, he washes all of us and recreates us. When he suffers, we suffer. When he dies, we die. And when he resurrects, we resurrect. And when he ascends into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, well, you are also sitting at the right hand of the Father. In a sense, as St. Paul told the Philippians, who are very proud of their Roman citizenship, for you are citizens of heaven. Mm. So, it's now time for God to prepare his people. So the first thing Moses needs to orally tell the, the Jews about their history with God, because they, they have to know who he is. They have to realize. So the way he does that is he teaches them about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Through that history, he learns about God's love, God's interactions. And just consider that. That for the Jews, their relationship with God is based on their history. It's based on who has God called, who has God befriended. Who of those he's befriended have listened to him and obeyed him and followed him? That is an excellent basis for the beginning of this relationship. And of course, we see the exodus, everyone leaving. Okay, very good. But now we come to quite an enigmatic book. Something that Moses receives on the top of Mount Sinai, we see the book of Leviticus. We see Levitical law. And I know some comment, oh, I never, when I'm talking to people and they're sharing, what book are you reading? Oh, I'm reading Romans. I'm reading Ecclesiastes. Colossians is such a great book. No one ever says, ah, oh, yeah, I am studying Leviticus. I love reading about burnt offerings. This is such an interesting and very deep book. Well, it is, but no one's saying that. It's often one of those things that just happens to be skipped, or if someone's doing that thing where they, they start reading the Bible from January, New Year, and they're going through Genesis and Exodus, and they get to Leviticus, maybe they, they finish Leviticus, maybe they don't, maybe they skip it, just go right to Numbers. Maybe, who knows? But Leviticus is an incredible book because it is instruction on how to be holy, instructions for holiness. What does that mean, instructions for holiness? Well, it's very clear, God says, be holy as I am holy. If I am going to separate you from the world unto me, then that means you shall be holy. Literally the word holy. Agios. Gios is like world. Ah, prefix without. So there is a separation. The Jews are separated from everyone else. And we see that. We see that in the different parts that talk about the foods that they eat and the practices that they have. These people are very different than all the other people. So Leviticus is broken up into five divisions. I, I, I won't, we won't get too much into it, but just for the sake of our knowledge, it's broken up into offerings, ordination, the priesthood, Aaron and his sons. Um, the Feast of Atonement is in the center of the book. Sorry, cleanliness, atonement, and then we come to the Code of Holiness followed by an appendix chapter 27 that focuses on vows and tithing. And many commentators today try to say that this book was not meant for you and me. It was meant for the Levites. I, I don't know among us if there's any Levites, so I don't know if we would continue reading it in the Coptic Orthodox Church if that was the case. Interestingly enough, I think Levites is only mentioned about twice in the book, so that would make no sense at all. Well, is it only for the priests? No, it's not. It's not just a workbook for liturgy. Rather, it is a guidebook for how all of us must worship. And how interesting that God cares about our worship, how we prepare to worship, how we offer ourselves in such worship. And now we really begin to come to something concrete, especially for the purpose of this time of Pascha, we are preparing through this journey. We've been prepared already in the Lent, but now we're preparing much more intensely to go with our Lord, to carry our crosses, 
to join him in his suffering. How excellent to do these things. It can only be done through baptism, but... God calls us to be holy, and I want to focus on a couple points. The, one of the earliest readings today was um, one, of the, one of the teachers, one of the Jews was asking, uh, Lord, will, will many be saved? <laughs> that was a silly question. <laughs> Jesus didn't even answer it. Did you notice that he didn't, he didn't answer it? He actually started talking about a narrow gate. He completely just ignored it. Why? Because it doesn't matter. Are many saved? Are, are few saved? How does that affect you? It's meaningless. It's a meaningless question, but the Lord was concerned with something much more important. Narrow is the way. And that's what we see in the law. We see something very narrow. And of course, now you're asking, why are we talking about the law? The law, the law was completed in Christ. Yes, but the law was a tutor, and had the Jews followed the law, then their fig tree would have borne fruit. So I'll give you an example. It's probably around either Leviticus 25 or 26, we hear about feasts. And we know the Lord said, I believe he said in Isaiah, among other places, I don't take delight in your, in your Sabbaths, your feasts for the new moon, all these different things that you do. Well, how come? You're the one who told Moses that this is a day unto the Lord. So then why, why would that upset you? <laughs> you made the thing. The main reason is because the people were really invested in the outward expression, but internally their hearts were so separated from God. God cares so much about the heart. Yeah, the feast is important because, for example, there's a, a, a feast of booths. When I first heard the feast of booths, I thought like it was a festival and they had like a booth you can throw the ball in and hit the, the milk thing and it falls. But no, no, it turns out booths refer to tents where the Jews would, the Jews lived at the time of the wilderness, their time in the wilderness until they, they came to the promised land. And what an incredible event that would be, a feast of booths, remembering the Lord delivered us. Now, this pertains to scripture and it's relevant to this point. There was always a tradition with the Feast of Booths and water. There was a point where it says in the Talmud, this, this commentary on the, on the Torah, uh, it says in the Talmud that one of the priests would go to a pool. You might have heard of it. It's called Siloam. They'll go to the pool and they get a pitcher of water and they go to the altar and these priests, they have a big procession, they pour the water over. They recognize a tradition between Siloam and salvation. Why is that? Because in the Jewish history, there was a king named Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was very wary that there were Assyrians that were coming to besiege Israel. So what does he do? Or his kingdom. I believe he was northern kingdom. So what does he do? We're going to build a tunnel, and we're going to hide in Siloam. And the word Siloam, it means scent, because it's like an aqueduct. It sends water. So the water would go from where the Assyrians were supposed to have it, and it goes to the Jews. The Assyrians are trying to besiege the Jews. Besiege, usually you'll do this. The, the soldiers will essentially surround a city to starve them so they can eventually either die of thirst or hunger or they just surrender. So they want to overtake the city. But they couldn't. They had no water. The Assyrians failed in their own attempt. It went right against them because of this pool of Siloam, which is sent. So the Jews should have this idea of that water is salvation. Now the Lord, I believe this was John 9, and this was the sixth Sunday of the, of the Great Lent, which is Baptism Sunday. 
There is the man who is born blind, and the Lord takes takes clay and he saliva and makes it and puts it in the eyes of the blind man, man born blind. And he tells him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he washes, and now all the Pharisees are up in arms. Oh, this is the Sabbath. What are you doing working on the Sabbath? And it's like they completely missed the point. I mean, had they known the tradition, had they known what the Lord was directing them towards, the idea of water and salvation, this would have been an indication to them that truly this is the Messiah of whom they've been waiting but see, the problem is they were so invested in these superficial aspects of the law. So today's reading went into it. One of the superficial aspects of the law was this thing about washing the hands. So they're washing their hands. Jesus isn't washing his hands. So they're upset at Jesus. Why aren't you washing your hands? And Jesus gets upset at them. So he goes on a diatribe. Why, are you, you don't, like, why do you care so much about washing the hands and you care about the, the tithe of the mint and the cumin and there, there's people that need help and you're completely ignoring them. I'm looking at the heart. You're looking at the hands. What's wrong? What's wrong with you, essentially? Now, it's very interesting. If you look into the book of Exodus and you try to find the right of washing the hands, there's no right for people washing their hands. I mean, it's good, especially after COVID. Now we all wash our hands, but... Uh, Following Exodus, the rite of washing the hands was only for the priests before they eat, right? No, no. Before they did the sacrifice. So the rite for washing the hands was for the priest. It was for the sacrifice. It had nothing to do with the people. But see, the law was given so the Jews could recognize, oh, we can't do this thing. I can't figure this out. This is very difficult. This is very tough. We need a, we need a God. We need a savior. We need one who could take this heavy yoke. But they completely missed the point and they said, oh, you know what? Let's wash our hands. Yeah, we're good people. We're very holy. We wash our hands before we eat. You completely missed the point. You were so concerned with something external. I guess that could still happen today. I can set up false standards, maybe in my own fasting. Ooh. I went until 11 a.m. without eating. I am so holy. I am incredible. And we begin to justify ourselves, but at the same time, when it comes to helping someone we see on the street or helping someone in anything, oh, well, you know, someone else will help them. I'm too holy for that. I fasted till 11. I don't need to help them out. It's a very strange thing, but society has justified itself in this way, and that's not what the law was meant to do. The law was not meant to justify any of us. The law was meant to show how much preparation I need, how much purification I need, how much transformation, sanctification. So here's one, and this is kind of shocking, really shocking. So I know some were trying to study the book of Leviticus, and they came across a couple of chapters, chapter 18 and chapter 20, and these speak against homosexuality. That's well, a very touchy topic these days. So there's verses that directly speak about it. Mm. Well, sometimes it's good to go to the original sources. Some will go, for example, to commentary on the Torah to see how did the Jews understand this? Well, some went to those commentaries and they found something rather shocking. The part on Leviticus 18, I believe, verse 3, either 3 or 20. 
there was an editorial note, and it said, in previous editions, we addressed this, but realizing today the understanding of homosexuality and how we address it, we realize how insensitive it is to discuss this. And then it just went on into a very loose, very gray discussion on the topic with no definitive point. There was no boldness to address it, to say how to help such a person, serve such a person, what God feels about such a person. When it came to incest and bestiality and all the other, all these other relationships, commentary had no problem. This is, this is wrong, this is awful for this reason and that reason. But why? Why did we leave the narrow way to suddenly go for something more broad? Well, you know, I might be called homophobic or I might be called something I don't want to be called. Is that a sign? I hope not. <laughs> no, no. I might be called something I don't want to be called. And no, sometimes in a very loving way, yet in a very firm way, we can't take what God has given us in the Coptic Orthodox Church in our beautiful tradition and suddenly change it because I want to appeal to the world. That would be the death of orthodoxy. And I think that's what happened to the Jews. They tried to appeal to look for the front row seats, to look for the honor and praise of people. Man, it did not work out for them because it isn't people we're trying to impress. It wasn't Peter, Andrew, James, and John that went to that fig tree to look for fruit. No, it was our Lord Jesus Christ. Even in terms of the preparation for the atonement, we see, this one's very interesting. I, I have to mention this. I have to mention this. Maybe, maybe we'll end soon. I have to mention this, though. Uh, when it speaks about atonement, Scripture focuses a lot on the presentation of Aaron. How is he going to dress? What? God cares about how we dress? Those that argue that God does not care about how we dress point to a verse in 1 Samuel where the prophet Samuel was called by God to anoint David the prophet. Now we know, we read Anok Pepikoji, Psalm 151 in our, in our tradition, in the Deuterocanonical books, in the Septuagint, there we go. Uh, we find that David is very small of stature. The king should be a very tall man, should be very strong, a symbol for the people. So Samuel says, look at him, God. This, this guy isn't fit to be the king. And then God says something that many people quote out of its proper context. I do not care about the outward appearance. I don't look at a man like anyone else would look at a man. God looks for something much deeper. And we'll take that and say, yes, the way I dress to the church and the way I dress to the gym will be synonymous. The ripped jeans will find their place here and the hoodie under the tunya, all these things. It's like, wow, <laughs> good, good thing for that verse. 
But then you read, you read Zechariah, there's a vision of this priest, his name is Joshua, and his garments are very filthy. God's like, why is the priest in front of me and he's wearing a filthy garment? Put, put some nice clothes on him. And you're thinking like, what does that mean? What does that mean? It's an outward expression. God doesn't care about the outward expression. He cares about the heart. Yeah, he cares about the heart and the outward expression. Can, can two things be true at once? I don't know if that's controversial. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. But he cares. From the heart that is pure, the heart that is seeking God, I will come to the Lord in a presentable way. I will come in a presentable way because I am meeting the king of kings. I'm, I'm condemned. The thing keeps falling. <laughs> I'm the next to fall. <laughs> third time. Third time. The third time the, the thing crows the rooster. Okay. Well, anyway, I'm going to keep going. I don't the flowers aren't going to stop me. Sorry. Uh, it cares about the heart. But even the heart of someone sincere is going to understand we're coming to meet God. It is very important. It's something thoughtful. But I am uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable dressed in this way coming before God. Well, yeah, I guess we should be a bit uncomfortable. I'll have to tell you, and I think the, the subdeacons in here would understand more than anyone Serving in the altar is an uncomfortable experience. Why? Because it's so holy. We're told to count our steps. We can't speak. It is an incredibly awesome and awful place. Why? Because we're so close to God. We're so close to the mysteries. There is a deep discomfort. And in a society that just comfort is, is up here. Just to be, I, I, was, I was at Macy's and they, they make suits now out of, out of sweats. I couldn't believe it. it looks like a suit and then you touch it. It's like I go to the gym in this thing. Uh, but it's incredible. A, a culture that is hiding comfort so much. But maybe I shouldn't be so comfortable to come into church speaking and walking around so much and you know the texting thing and the this and that thing and the other thing. It's distracting us from the real reason that we're here. And I, I guess to conclude it, because I said I was going to, I guess, solve the problem. If the fig tree doesn't have any fruit, that's the problem. I didn't, I didn't really talk about how to get fruit. <laughs> what we see is the key is intimacy with God. Participating in the sacramental life. Constantly looking inward. Because I guess that's where the preparation is supposed to be. Not just the reading of Scripture, although the reading of Scripture is sanctifying, as the Lord said, I think it was John 15, now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you, abide in me and I in you. There is a quality of Scripture that prepares us to meet Christ, and that's probably why we have to attend the reading of the gospel to partake of the Eucharist, although we should also, we should also be here for the absolution of the ministers to be absolved but it is fundamentally a life of devotion a life of sacrifice a life of self-denial that will lead to fruit a life of justification might make me look good in front of well i guess the congregation but it's not the congregation that will judge us the one who will judge us is our lord jesus christ he is a judge, but, I mean, he doesn't want to judge. He wants to defend. But if we 
are trying to justify ourselves. We take him out of that defense position. Now he's the one who's going to put us down. We see that really clearly in the prayer of the Pharisee and the publican. Thank you, God, you, you made me a Pharisee, not like this publican. The Lord was there, heard the prayer. Guy was condemned. But the one who beat his chest and said, Lord, have mercy on me, I am a sinner. This one the Lord elevated. So I pray as we continue this Paschal journey together, may we be worthy through the gift of the Holy Spirit to bear fruit. And we know the first fruits we receive is our Lord Jesus Christ, and we receive the fruits of the Holy Spirit to practice such virtues, to be found pure, to be worthy of the partaking of the Eucharist. To our Lord Jesus Christ belongs all glory and honor with his good Father and the Holy Spirit. Glory be to God forever. Amen.